Hello, everyone. I am Faisal Rizvi. With me today is Sam Dibble, his partner at BakerBots. Today, Sam and I will talk about a very interesting concept that has, over the past few years, gained quite some traction. Now, several oil and gas majors have launched billion-dollar-plus corporate venture funds. For instance, there are Chevron Technology Ventures, Oxy's Low Carbon Venture, that are all investing in startups, projects, and technologies that are all aimed at improving sustainability. Sam, could you tell us more about these corporate venture funds and really how are they shaping the broader energy transition, especially in North America? Sure, happy to talk about them. Uh, these corporate venture funds obviously are um, a hot topic, the amount of money and the commitments that the larger uh, corporations have made to um, basically these investment funds uh, is really quite staggering. Um, the, the history of corporate venture funds really isn't all that long. Um, you know, especially compared to, you know, the traditional venture capital funds that I think most people are aware of, which started, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, and, and obviously have grown in importance and size of um, dollar commitment since then. Uh, corporate venture funds, you know, roughly uh, 2010 or so, um, you know, maybe some that started a little earlier, uh, post 2008, um, you know, recession. And there, there are a lot of factors that went into it. One of them was really um, a way to uh, outsource resource uh, research and development efforts, um, especially by large corporations that had a very large budget for uh, that type of expense. Um, but we're looking for ways to cut back, uh, you know, following the recession and the early recovery in the 2010s. And of course, what they ended up doing was deciding that they could, um, you know, invest money in early stage companies that were, you know, playing around with new technologies or ideas that they might be able to integrate into their business model. Um, you know, speaking of energy companies in particular, uh, you know, I think some of the original goals were really to achieve efficiencies um, that maybe were lacking, you know, new technologies that really just hadn't been integrated into old line businesses that have been around for quite some time with, you know, very well established infrastructures, but based on technologies from, you know, 10, 20, 30 years prior. Um, so exploiting those efficiencies also, um, as a way to get introduced to strategic players, especially uh, new up and coming businesses in the tech field um, and to develop relationships with them, uh, maybe in advance of their competitors, uh, maybe in ways that would help their proprietary um, oil and gas technologies uh, and, and opportunities for exploration, et cetera. Um, and then finally, you know, as a way to make money, I mean, you know, companies are looking to improve profitability any way they can. Uh, venture capital space and investment in technology companies generally, um, you know, no surprise here, uh, has been very profitable for a number of people in a number of different sectors. And so devoting some of that money that might have otherwise gone either to research and development or um, advertising and PR and putting it into a corporate venture fund uh, seems like a very natural transition. Uh, I think what's surprising is the extent to which capital has been uh, devoted to these funds. I mean, since since they were first um, brought online, you know, uh, roughly a decade ago, I, I think the amount of money committed to them probably doubled in the first five years. And then it took another couple of years for it to double again, and it's doubled even since the pandemic. So uh, this is definitely a trend that is um, continuing and accelerating during, um, you know, extended lockdown during the pandemic. Right. No, Sam, thank you. Thank you for setting the stage for the conversation and really talking talking to us about what really these venture funds are all about, the history and more about them. But really, if we talk about 
where they're investing. So clean tech is, of course, expected to remain a dominant investment theme. And as new energy and sustainability become more important features of oil and gas company strategies, tell us, Sam, can you give us a broader picture on how these efforts are tied to the ESG considerations of oil and gas companies? Sure. Well, look, uh, ESG is, you know, at the top of everyone's hot list and has been, you know, for at least the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, look, I, I think everyone uh, within the industry and even outside the industry and the financial players see this as well, is looking for um, the traditional, you know, large oil and gas players to diversify a bit. They have all of their eggs in one basket, and it's a basket that's, you know, largely under attack for um, global warming and pollution, um, maybe even uh, human rights and, and uh, you know, any number of uh, long list of issues that have been brought up, um, you know, by uh, um, investors uh, for the most part. I mean, this is obviously there's a social component to this, but I think the ones that the oil and gas companies care most about are their investors. And there have been some very activist investors who have raised issues with the way uh, these companies have been doing business um, without looking at diversification and away from, you know, kind of more drilling and more transportation of um, oil and gas products across the world. That's sort of been the infrastructure that has been in place and been very successful for these companies for quite some time. Um, but, you know, I think for a number of reasons, including uh, sustainability and environmental reasons, um, uh, alternative energy technologies, uh, including solar, of course, wind, even biomass and, and, and nuclear, um, as well as uh, hydrogen and some other um, technologies that really aren't quite advanced enough to be reliable, but are, are being looked at. All of those alternatives um, are important for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, just from a business perspective, being able to diversify away from a limited resource like oil and gas makes perfect sense. These, these are companies that have customer relationships and distribution channels to, um, to get their products to where they need to go. Uh, and often um, involve the energy grid and things like that uh, that are relevant for alternative um, energy sources as well. Um, they have obviously good cash flow, great credit. And so they're able to make these investments um, in BSG type companies that you know, are emerging, but really you know, they just don't have the established infrastructure. They haven't quite proven the business case, but um, costs keep coming down. I mean, if you look at solar, that's a great example. I mean, if you were to look at what it costs to uh, build and transport a solar panel in 2000 uh, compared to today and how much more energy can be produced from even a single uh, panel or array, it's, it's quite staggering. So uh, the efficiencies in, in solar in particular um, are, are you know, very attractive uh, as well as the renewable aspect of it. Uh, for companies in the United States, obviously the um, energy independence aspect of these types of investments is very uh, important. Um, I think offshore wind is something that's really gained a lot of traction. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some offshore technologies that work perfectly well for offshore drilling that can possibly be brought to uh, uh, offshore wind development. Um, and, and then obviously battery and energy storage is the last area where, um, you know, obviously there are complications with some of the metals and and uh, you know environmental impact of the batteries, but in general, um, that aspect of um, uh, you know ESG is is critical. Um, you know, in, in terms of governance, uh, you know, I and mean, I think uh, 
Um, again, investors and activist investors have definitely stepped up. I mean, this um, has been in the news, obviously, over the last year. Uh, I don't think I need to get into the details of it, but I think it, it does show um, that this is not just a fringe uh, issue anymore. It's really become mainstream, and it's become a dollars and cents issue uh, as well. So uh, these alternative energy um, sources and investments are um, they really are going to play out in a critical way for oil and gas companies going forward. Great. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for that insight. Uh, but really now we'd like to talk to you about uh, the U.S. policy in, in energy. Uh, can you explain how the current legislation and regulations are really shaping investments in clean tech? Sure. Well, and, you know, um, and, and, you know, uh, we can talk about, I'll, I'll start with federal regulation how's that uh, there are some things happening here in California where I'm based where you know there's a bit of a different tone but I, I think in general at the federal level um, and, and in most of the states you know I think California's started much earlier and is probably further down the, the road on this but in general the sense is that um, alternative energy sources and investments are starting at a disadvantage that is um, a lot of the infrastructure, uh, that has built up around oil and gas is not present uh, for any of the alternative energy sources. And therefore, in order to make the business case pencil out, there has to be either uh, a requirement uh, that certain goals be met, um, even though they might be you know, uneconomic in terms of what their output is compared to what the cost is, uh, or strong economic incentives to try to bring the cost in line with what um, you know, competing technologies, usually uh, fossil fuel related, um, might otherwise enjoy in the market. And so, um, you know, we, we do see this, obviously, um, uh, the, the latest round of um, um, incentives and, and economic policy from the Biden administration has, has greatly stressed um, renewable energy, uh, both in terms of uh, requirements uh, for automobiles, uh, power plants, you know, electric grid, et cetera, to try to um, do both of those things. One, require certain thresholds and targets within a certain timeline, and also to provide economic support to help uh, equalize the, the infrastructure and encourage um, not just short-term investment, but long-term building out of an infrastructure to, to make these technologies viable, uh, get the um, uh, distribution and transportation uh, elements taken care of and addressed in, in a policy um, that, that's you know, cohesive for the whole country. So it's not just state by state or city by city. If you take that federal overlay and then add in what individual states are doing, it becomes very interesting because uh, there's a debate right now in California about some solar incentive programs that are actually being scaled back because of some of the distortions in what's happened in terms of who takes advantage of solar energy incentives, uh, what pricing is applicable when solar generated electricity is put back into the grid. Uh, the fact that, you know, direct generated solar, which is sort of the rooftop um, or, or, you know, backyard uh, solar array, when it goes back into the grid, there's not really a tax, there's not really any um, contribution by those participants in the energy distribution process. They're not paying money to support or sustain uh, or upgrade the energy grid. And of course, here in California, the energy grid has been, um, you know, a key element of, you know, a number of uh, large forest fires and, and other, um, you know, really obsolete equipment that really hasn't been upgraded. And so we're actually seeing something different potentially in California, which is 
uh, some disincentives uh, for traditional alternative energy investment um, to address some externalities and aspects of the initial incentive programs that were intended to support uh, investment in these types of technologies because of some distortions to the rest of the system that resulted and trying to figure out whether um, the economic value of an incremental um, you know, uh, megawatt should be treated uh, at retail price or uh, whether it should be um, instead uh, at a wholesale price. And obviously there's a big, big difference, especially in a state like California, which has generally high energy prices, especially for large users of energy, which are of course the very folks who put in these solar systems to begin with. Great, thank you so much, Sam. That brings us to the end of our discussion, but I really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us today. And on behalf of Heart Energy, thank you so much for being with us today. That was my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. For more Heart Energy videos, follow our social media channels.